Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers and perfect gifts for the holidays. That's right. Buy one for everybody you know. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas, and now sessionable beers. <laughs> okay. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Okay. And on today's episode, we're promising you a shorter episode after the last sort of gargantuan episode. I'm sorry, Denny. I made you edit all that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Um, but we did get some great feedback on that. We'll get there. But on today's episode, we're going to actually go and visit again with John Jackson over at my new local brewery, Wild Parrot, just to catch up with him and see what changed between the time that we talked to him and the time that he opened and what expectations he had that are right and which ones are wrong and where he goes from there. <laughs> and if he's out on the streets asking people for money. <laughs> no, but he is trying to get people into the brewery to have beer. So... Well, same thing, and that's probably a good idea. But before any of that stuff happens, please listen to this message about the people that make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We usually start off here with some announcements, but before we do that, I just want to say happy anniversary, Drew. Huh? Oh, yeah, you're right. It is the anniversary, isn't it? November 11th, 2016 was the very first episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs> and that was how long ago? 2017? Six years ago. Oh, man. We've been doing this for a while, but hey. No, no, no. I was wrong. It's 2015. It was seven years ago. Seven years ago? Well, that's almost a grade school level. Wait, no, that is grade school level. Good oh, Lord. man. I knew there was a reason I'm so damn tired. <laughs> well, hey, look, all I can say is, I've been, you know, I mean, yeah, it's been seven years. We've gone through some ups. We've gone through some downs. We've gone through some changes. But I still enjoy talking about beer, and I still enjoy hearing back from people about the things we talk about. Uh, No comment. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, so let's get on with those announcements. All right, and so the first announcement is if you didn't pay attention to your podcast feed, I just finished talking with Wayne Wambles of Cigar City, you know, fairly well-known, fairly well-respected brewery and brewer, all about American brown ale and how to make it and why people don't make it or drink it as much as they used to. And I thought it was actually really interesting to dig into the fact that Wayne had actually created this recipe back when he was a brew pub brewer and said even back then, which would have been in the 90s, he had to brew half-size batches of it because it just wouldn't sell as well, 
even all the way back then, <laughs> even as much as we think of the glory days of walking into a brew pub and seeing a multicolored rainbow of beers. Back then, brown ales still had challenges. But I'll tell you what, brown ale's good. You should make some. Yeah, man. Uh, brown ale was the first beer that I had ever brewed that I won an award for. Uh, and it's next up in my brewing lineup. Woo! With the no tie brown or? Yep, the no tie brown. There we go. All there right. is no other brown ale. <laughs> there is no brown ale, only no tie. That's uh, right. All right. Well, and don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's the Pongo Fund, basically a food bank for pets. So uh, help us help get those pets fed uh, if people are having trouble doing it themselves. Throw us a buck or two by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Click on the Patreon link. Throw us a little bit of money that we can pass along to Pongo to feed all his pet buddies. Yeah, and I say this as somebody who has a snoring chihuahua at his feet right now. Dogs and cats need to eat just as much as we do. So make sure Maybe you get more, some huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Help us help. All right. And now, of course, it's time for one of my favorite parts of the show because I get to sound really cool for about 1.2 seconds. And here we go. It's time for your feedback. feedback. <laughs> All right. We got a couple pieces of feedback. And as I said up at the front of the show, I'm sorry, Denny, I made you edit all that nerdery talk. But we did get some good feedback on it. And I got a couple pieces here. First piece of feedback comes from Frank Rinaldi, who actually is chiming in on two topics. So he gave us a picture, and he said, This is my two-vessel, no-sparge, five-kilowatt electric induction basement system that goes by the name of Brewbolt. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Uh, it says, Tough to find five kilowatts here in the state, but I located this cooktop on eBay from a commercial kitchen equipment supplier out of Hong Kong. I also have an old fridge that I converted into a fermentation chamber that I've dubbed the Mother Flocker. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, into naming his equipment. That, that even, he's even worse than we are. Well, at least uh, Mother Flocker reminds me of Zappa, so there we go. Yep. Uh, that's, I think that's the second Zappa-induced name we've had. <laughs> um, and he continues on, Regarding the show on brewing colonial style in Williamsburg, I would be very interested to know more from Frank Clark on a homebrew-scale version of Washington's or Jefferson's Porter recipe. As a history buff, not quite nerd status, don't worry, you can aspire to it, and huge porter fan, I would enjoy being able to make a porter made from the same ingredients and tasting similar to what our forefathers drank on their estates. Well, Frank, hang on to your shorts for a half a second. Because our next piece of feedback came from Bert Whited, who wrote in and said, Really enjoyed the interview with Frank Clark. I make a molasses-style beer that is very popular with my homebrew friends and many light lager drinkers I know. The recipe is based on information gained on a visit to Monticello, where a beer recipe was written on the wall in the beer room. It ends up as a good drinking ale that is easy to drink. My recipe is two-thirds two-row and one-thirds wheat with a pound of molasses for color and flavor. I finish with Kent Golding hops and use USO5 yeast. I try to always have my Thomas Jefferson ale in the kegerator, or TJ as my friends call it. That means something different here in Southern California. For everyone to enjoy, brewing your own beer gives you the chance to try something you just can't find. So, Frank... There you go. Meet, meet Bert. Bert just gave you a recipe. <laughs> uh, however, to your point, yes, I am planning on waiting until after Frank is done with the whole conference because I imagine right now 
He's probably mildly stressed. I'm going to wait until after the conference and bring him back on, probably into the brew files, and we'll talk about molasses beer and historical porter and get some more uh, dig into that so that the people can actually do this at home. And our final piece of feedback comes from Dave, who wrote in about the two-beer pub. Remember in the last episode, we had talked about how up there in Maine, a Sacred Profane is opened up. They have only a light and a dark beer, very much a Czech-style tank pub. And we were you know, ruminating about that and how interesting it is to have just a two-beer pub. Dave wrote in and said, hey, guys, what about McSorley's Old Ale House in New York City? They famously only serve pale or dark Although I think they missed the mark on your other criteria of being a high-quality beer. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to take his word for that. They have been doing it for more than 150 years. A quick scan of info on the internet hints that only one beer, a pale, was served in the beginning, mid-1800s. I couldn't get an answer on when they might have added the dark beer to the menu. Dave, you're absolutely right about McSorley's in more ways than one. Yes, two beers, uh, light and dark or pale or dark, uh, served in ridiculously tiny mugs. Beer quality is okay for something like McSorley's. Um, I will say that it's an interesting place, and if you're in New York City, you definitely need to at least show up and and have a pint there at McSorley's if you're a beer lover. Uh, Just watch out for all the old stuff in the ceiling. Now, I will also say that one of the big differences between McSorley's and Sacred Profane is McSorley's doesn't brew their beer. So I think... At one point in time, I think it was being brewed by FX Matt up in Utica. I don't know who's doing it nowadays. I don't know if it's still FX Matt or if I'm, my information was wrong. But yeah, it's brewed elsewhere and brought down to them, and they sell it there as Pale or Dark McSorley's Old Ale. Um, but yeah, McSorley's is definitely one of those old-school joints. I'd be curious to see if anybody else has any information on any other two-beer type of joints, because sometimes all you need is two beers. <laughs> two beers is my limit. Two beers over the line. (laughs) All right. And speaking of beers, I think it's time for us to have some. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's get the heck out of here and head over to the pub. We'll meet you all there. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. 
Welcome back, and welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub here at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace. And, of course, we're having a couple beers. And, as always, Drew gets to go first. And so, for me, I'm starting today with, well, I'd mentioned it up in the in the announcement section, I'm having a brown ale. And, specifically, I'm having a moose drool brown ale. And I, I laugh. The Part of the reason I'm having this is because the other day I did a tasting for the Falcons, inspired in part by the episode that you just saw in the brew files, and did a whole line of brown ales. And I did, what, uh, Sam Smith, Newcastle Brown, now from Chicago, brewed by Lagunitas, and way more bitter than I remember it being before, uh, Moostrel, Lost Coast Downtown Brown, and Rogue Hazelnut, um, which has still way too much hazelnut flavor. Yeah, man, but, you know, it, it, that beer is all about the hazelnut. And to even think of it as a brown ale, I think, is kind of missing the point. Yeah, well, but the reason I had it in the tasting was because I wanted to say, oh, hey, look, you can also add flavors to brown ale. Um, which, yeah. by the way, we di- I didn't cover in the episode with Wayne, but I actually think brown ale makes a pretty good base for other flavors. But the thing about Moostrel was, you know, it's just, it's a wonderful drinking beer. It's got four malts in it. It's only 5%. It's 26 IBUs. And it uses a couple of my favorite hops in Liberty and Willamette. It also uses EKG, which go back and forth on in terms of quality. It's not quite fuggle level <laughs> hatred, right? Oh, you know, Willamette and EKG, I'm fine with. Yeah. Used in, in context. Yeah, I still try and argue to people that uh, Willamette is much better than a lot of the imported Zots we get here. Um, so, but, <laughs> yeah. Moostrel is a classic for a reason. The thing I do think was interesting was in tasting, say, Sam Smith's versus Moostrel, like side to side, back to back with each other, is how much richer the Moostrel is. Like in terms of like overall malt flavor, it's just much more mouth coating than all the English examples that we were having. So really interesting. I kind of miss the days when brown ale was a little more available. Because, uh, oh, and also I did think it was funny that all of those beers I bought and took to a tasting, I could have bought all those beers in 1996 and taken them to a tasting. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, man, I was about to say that. I don't think I've had a moose drool in over 25 years, but it used to just be one of my absolute favorites. It's a good beer. People need to re- yeah, revisit yeah. it. Yeah, no, I, I probably will. It's just one of those things that with all the variety of beers out there, uh, it's like, it's hard to justify something that, you know, the, what can I say? <laughs> I know. I, know. I, I got it. You know, it's like, do I, do I go for something that may be a little stolid, but also old and classic? Or do I try something new, which is exactly what I sent you? Well, not not even new, but, you know, just something that, that I'm not quite so familiar with, something I think I'm going to like better. And, yes, you did send me something new. You sent me a Dr. Octobach from Paperback <laughs> Brewing. Uh, it, a very interesting beer. It's called a German Festbach. It's 6%. Uh, guy from uh, Zambo. I don't know Zambo, but he, uh, he was formerly with uh, 21st Amendment. He's the brewer there. Uh, it's hopped with Magnum, Hallertower, and Azaka to 26 IBUs. It was an okay beer, but it didn't send me. To me, it was kind of a confused beer that didn't really know what it wanted to be. At least, 
you know, judging by the name and the hype on the label, I had expected something kind of like a cross between an Oktoberfest and a Bach. And it wasn't, it wasn't malty enough to really remind me of either one of those. Uh, it was not a bad beer by any means. It was just a beer that didn't have a lot of there there, you know? Well, in, in fairness, I think they, they, they refer to it as Festbach, but I mean, really, it's a Fest beer. You know, they're just trying to, they're trying to get that Bach name out there. It didn't, and you know, and it didn't really do it for me as a fest beer either. I mean, that's what I, I was trying to like think of it in in those terms. But and again, you know, it was not a bad beer by any means. I just didn't really make me go, oh, geez, I wish I had another one of these. Well, and I will say, Zambo, David Zamborski, who started his brewing career here in Los Angeles, which is the reason why I know him so well, uh, moved up to Twenty One A, was brewer there for a while, has brewed at a couple other places. He's been the opening brewer here for Paperback, and Paperback's located here in Glendale, California. And they've been doing a lot of really fun and different work. I sent you the Octobach because I thought it was interesting. A lot of their focus is obviously on IPAs these days because that's what people drink. Um, right. But, but the Octobach was interesting. It was also seasonal, so it's not available anymore, unfortunately. Um, but Zamba will always do something very interesting. He also has a beer out there called Furious George, which is... A barrel-aged triple in cans, <laughs> which is very strange to me. <laughs> wow, in cans. Uh, I had a I had a, a Scotch barrel-aged Duvel when I was in uh, in uh, Belgium, and that was quite good. So barrel-aged triple, hey, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I would uh, I I know at some point I got to get Zambo on here to talk about some stuff because he's had a very interesting brewing career. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but yeah, like I said, I thought you'd find the Octobach at least interesting and something oh, I, different I, I than de- another I IPA. I definitely did. I definitely did. It wasn't. It wasn't like one of the beers that I take a sip and the rest of it goes down the drain. You know, it was. Uh, it, it was an enjoyable beer to drink. It was just kind of hard to figure out. There you go. That's always fun. You know, it's good to have a puzzle. It keeps your brain flexible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you say so. And speaking of uh, flexibility, I think it's time for us to get into the news, where yep. uh, the very first thing out there is some changes that have happened for, well, changes back to the way things were, because the AHA has now put out the announcements there for the National Homebrew Competition. If you remember for the past couple of years, thanks to COVID and uh, weirdness, there was no first round anymore, and all the beers that you wanted to enter had to get shipped over to Colorado. Uh, where they would then hold a big giant judging session. Well, now that things are sort of, uh, calmed down, or at least, you know, the restrictions and whatnot have calmed down in a way, uh, the HA has made an announcement that they are moving back to regional first rounds, which means, uh, Denny, remind me what there were like seven or eight different regional sites? I think, I think it was up to eight. Uh, I, I don't really remember. And so what that means is that if you want, you can enter your beer into the, your region. Maybe get uh, you know, slightly less uh, expensive uh, shipping. So, for instance, San Diego will probably be one of the regions because they always are. Northern California around San Francisco will have a region. Uh, and you'll be able to actually get your beers in closer. You'll do a first round, and then there'll be a chance to rebrew and submit for a second round. Registration for those will open up on January 24th. We'll remind you all before we get there. And, of course, the second round will be judged in San Diego in June at HomebrewCon, where Denny and I both will be, and we hope to see you as well. So basically, then, you'll have to ship twice. Yeah, well, assuming you move on to the second round, yes. Yeah, right. 
And of course, we know that all of our listeners are such fine brewers that you all will have to ship on to the second round. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Now, from the that competition to a competition I did not think was actually going to be a thing, but now has actually run for at least two years, the U.S. Open Hard Seltzer Championship was just held. <laughs> and, Denny, <sighs> Denny, I know you're just chomping at the bit to know the results of this one, are you? Yeah, man. I, I want to know which one of those I should be buying. Well, and so what I thought was interesting, though, was, uh, okay, so... It's at least in its second year of competition. This year they had 80 different hard seltzer brewers, you know, or brewers of hard seltzer, I should say, because a lot of these are also brewing companies, um, enter with 250 entries. Fort Myers Brewing actually won the overall championship. They got like something like five medals in this. But if you go and you look through, like one, the style guidelines or the style categories are insane because every fruit is called out separately as a different category. So you got lime <laughs> seltzer, peach seltzer, orange seltzer category. You got one that's uh, pog, so pineapple, orange, guava, you know, like hitting all the major highlights of people's uh, flavor choices for seltzer. But the, the ones that caught my attention were there were two special awards that they gave. One was what they called the Founders Award, uh, which they gave to one that they well, actually, both of these go to ones that they couldn't put into any category, and they just really liked them, and so they awarded them a medal. Um, and the first one is in the Founders Award. It is a barrel-aged rum wash hard seltzer from Kilowatt Brewing here in California. And the, the notes on it said, it's 17% ABV and barrel-aged. This seltzer could not be put into category, but it was absolutely delicious. My personal favorite in the competition. Uh, I will say... 17% ABV definitely seems to have moved away from what everybody thought of seltzer as being, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's 5%. It's easy to drink. La, 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 la. Low calories. 17%, not low calories. But I am kind of curious to see, like, how that rum wash actually tastes. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The other one that they gave was a judge's award. So the founder of the competition gave one, and then the judges gave another one to another one that didn't fit into any sort of category. It is called Holy Water Smoked Grapefruit Paloma from Thirsty Monk in North Carolina. And I thought this was interesting because Paloma is actually a really good cocktail. And they said, when the judges tasted this seltzer, they were truly amazed. The grapefruit flavor was very subtle, and the serrano peppers complimented this seltzer to make it like no other. The judges asked if we could give this a special award since it did not fit in category, so we did. Uh, and again... Interesting. This is way more into the cocktail range. I'd be curious to know if, like, how dominant those flavors were as opposed to, like, again, nominally, I think my favorite description of a lot of hard seltzers is, you know, when you see a fruit on the hard seltzer can and you drink it, it's kind of like popping open a can of seltzer water and hearing TV static saying the, the fruit name off in the, the corner. <laughs> so I'd be curious to see how the flavors on those were. But, uh, again, I never would have predicted we would have had a... Hard Seltzer Championship, but there we are. Yep. Um, on slightly more beer-related news, Siebel, the classic uh, place to go learn how to actually make beer, you know, you know, actual science and not just supposition on our part, uh, there in Chicago has turned 150, and they held a party this past weekend as we're recording during the Festival of the Barrel-Aged Beer, and they invited back a lot of their alumni and uh, people who have been around the brewing industry and Given us lots of good words on how to make beer, but I thought it was kind of cool that Siebel had turned 150. It's uh, it's remarkable, man. Uh, you know, just think about how things have changed in brewing education over the last 150 years. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you think about it. I mean, back when Siebel opened, 
we barely even knew about things like yeast. You know, what I mean? it was <laughs> so uh, lots of lots of changes over time. Uh, I wonder because Siebel used to work out of the, uh, the the back rooms of Goose Island on Clybourne, um, and I don't know if they're still there or whatnot. But it's, it's very interesting. They have a close relationship with uh, what was it with Weistefaner, I think, right over there in Germany. Yeah. Um, so Siebel's always been a, a good place. They did a lot a, a lot of support for homebrewing back in the day. Um, but it's nice to see them uh, turn 150 and uh, invite all their alumni back for a party. Yeah, really, man. It seems like they're still going strong. Yep. All right. And finally, one last story. We know that the beer world is sort of in flux. Would that be the right way to say it, Denny? Um, <laughs> That's one way to say it. And there have been a lot of things where, you know, breweries have shut down or breweries are you know getting bought out. A lot of concerns about, you know, what's the longevity for a lot of these places, particularly as we get into more, uh, I don't want to say vintage breweries, but legacy breweries. Legacy breweries, that's the way we put it. And Lost Abbey actually put out an announcement and was put out through the San Diego Beer News and uh, that they've decided, no, they're not shutting down. They're reducing the size of the brewery. So if you read the the article that we'll include in the show notes, what I thought was very interesting was Tommy said that, okay, so Lost Abbey was founded and operating out of the original, or not the original, but the the Stone Brewing Company's facility that they had before they had the massive place they have in Escondido. Um, and they started with a 30-barrel system because they were very enthusiastic and and you know positive on the outlook of what would be happening with beer. Now, Lost Abbey is part of Port Brewing, and it's very confusing how all this works, but Port Brewing has both Port Brewing and Lost Abbey. Port Brewing does all the sort of classically American stuff, so like Mongo IPA and Swami Pale Ale and all these other beers. Lost Abbey obviously focuses on Abbey-ish things and Belgian-ish-y things and all that. Now, with the downturn in what we've seen in terms of Belgian beer consumption or Belgian-style beer consumption here in the U.S., Lost Abbey has taken a hit on that front. And they they even said, Tom even says in the article, that they were never really brewing enough beer to justify having a 30-barrel system. It was way too big for what, they, for what their needs were. And at no point did Lost Abbey ever actually cross over 8,000 barrels per year, which surprised the hell out of me, actually. Yeah. Um, and so what they're doing is they're selling off the 30-barrel system. They're reducing their, their warehouse footprint. And they're going to a smaller system, more like a 15-barrel system. So what I thought was very interesting about this was that instead of instead of closing or shutting down or discontinuing the brand, they've decided to take the sort of monetary hit of getting rid of the, the bigger system and installing a smaller system while shunting all of the production of the things like Mongo and whatnot off on their modern American brewing system over at Bressy Ranch. And so they get a chance to kind of Really, I guess the right term is right size it, you know, right size the facility for the current demand and where they think they're going to be. But I thought this was interesting because I think this is the first time I can recall hearing a brewery taking this particular step. Yeah, I agree, man. And it makes just perfect sense. Yeah. Now, by the way, this still does not impact, uh, you know, the availability of those Lost Abbey beers because obviously they never maxed out their, their facility anyway. But if you haven't had a Lost Abbey beer in a while, Maybe go have some. I highly encourage it. I would also be really. <laughs> I curious. would if I could. Well, that's true. I can hear. Oops. Um, but I will say, 
This was interesting to me. I don't think I've ever heard of another brewery doing this. If y'all out there have heard of another brewery doing this, let me know. I think the closest thing I can think of is Stouts Brewing, which shut down the Bing Brewery, was going to open up a brew pub, decided not to do that, and is now back kind of contract brewing. So uh, that's the closest thing I can think of commercially to this. But this is the first time I've seen a functioning brewery say, well, you know what? We're going to step back and go small. So. Yeah. I mean, it's it's brilliant, actually. Yeah, well, and to me, if it means there's a further longevity to the Lost Abbey brand and the ability to be able to get your hands on Tommy's beers, then uh, more power to them. Yep. All right. I think that's enough beer news for now. Let's get to the library. Yeah, we're going to head over to the library and uh, just real quickly give you an idea of a couple things you might want to check out. So stick around. We'll be right back and see you there. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. Or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Welcome back, everybody. Good to see you here in the library. And uh, we're going to be talking about a couple cool things to read. And the first one uh, is a newsletter from Mr. Stan Hieronymus, uh, the master of all things hop. Uh, and it's uh, a For the Love of Hops newsletter. And uh, he got into looking at uh, first word hopping again and publishing some new studies that's been done about that. First word hopping has been of uh, incredible interest to me. Uh, nearly 25 years ago, I actually ran an experiment on first word hopping. And uh, the results were fairly inconclusive as to the effects of it. And uh, what do you know? That's pretty much the same thing that the new study found, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um 
so Stan sends out this uh, newsletter periodically, but it was really interesting to see digging through. And he, he walks through the history of it and talking about how this all kind of got kicked off in, in people's well modern modern knowledge in about 1995 with uh, an article in Browall. And um, but he said that you know like we all have this perception of of this being an old process that was kind of lost back in the day and was very, very German and all that sort of fun stuff. And if you go and you read through, it turns out that uh, no, uh, it wasn't unique to Germany. For instance, uh, they said it was being used at a lot of Belgian breweries uh, all the way up into the 1970s. Um, and so the, got a quote from the guy who uh, Jean-Marie Rock, who was, Doing directing a brewing at Orval, talking about when they when he first started like doing this at Palm, for instance, um, and it was just kind of interesting to kind of dig in and find out like some of the myths that we that were there, and also really finding out like okay what was the overall impact, and he points out there was a study done five years ago by Christina Hahn who works under one of our favorite hop people in the world, Doctor Shellhammer, and. Put, put together a, a an experiment and a poster to do the analysis on it, and that they found that there was doing everybody's favorite p test uh, sort of uh, idea that there was no perceivable sensory different difference between beers that were done with first word hopping and beers not done with first word hopping. Uh, so again, kind of to that point of first word hopping. Do you do it if you want to? Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it, it's one of those things that. It is an interesting thing. Uh, sometimes I think it makes a difference. Sometimes I'm th- not quite sure about it. Uh, but it's one of those things that I would say, if you have any interest at all in it, find out for yourself. Yep. Well, and also not the whole newsletter wasn't just about, you know, the first word hopping. No. There was also a report in there about some new studies digging into how much freshness of your hops matters. Now, we tend to have... a viewpoint that okay you know look you you process the hops they get turned into pellets you go and you store them cold because they're in nice flush packages they're going to be relatively stable and really all that matters is you know the idea of like how much are alpha acids in our oils now one thing that we never talk about at the humber level at least is the whole idea of what they call the hsi which is a hop storage index right and this research that was done in slovenia actually showed that, hey, you know, looking at different hops and different HSI values and then the resulting beers out of them really did actually show that people could perceive a difference between beers that were done with the fresher hops versus beers, you know, fresher processed dry hops, not fresh wet hops, fresher processed dried hops than the older ones that were stored properly. And so really kind of pointing out that there is some kind of perceivable difference there that people need to think about, at least at the professional level. Yeah, well, and, you know, I've, uh, I learned, I guess I learned about the hop storage index maybe eight or ten years ago. Um, and I started tracking with my hops. And yeah, I, I do believe that it makes a difference. Uh, does it make a huge difference at the homebrew level? God, I couldn't say. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, I think to me at our level, HSI just matters more for looking around and saying, hey, is that 2018 hop I have still good? <laughs> Yeah, right. And well, it's especially uh, valuable for, you know, if you want to be very, very accurate about your IBUs, which, of course, you never really can be because IBUs are such a flaky concept. The IBU is a lie. <laughs> or, or something. Yep. 
right. And then the other thing that we wanted to bring to your attention, even though it's not so much uh, library-ish, and by the way, can I say, I can't believe I keep saying library instead of library. My grandmother would be upset with me because my grandmother was a librarian. Um, but the other thing that we wanted to call your attention to is periodically good old Dr. Charlie Bamforth, the Pope of Foam, as he, as some people have designated him. Uh, his beer quality foam class is from UC Davis is available again up on Coursera. It's running right now as we're speaking. It is a four week study program. And of course, since it's on Coursera, it's at your leisure. Uh, and if you're not trying to get a certificate, you know, that you can use in, you know, to show, look, I have all this fancy knowledge now. If you're not trying to get a certificate and you're really just trying to fill your brain with stuff, then it's free. And you can sit down and walk through four weeks of study and, you know, go through and, you know, they say it's about uh, one to two hours per week and watch lectures from Charlie, you know, work through some quizzes and some reading and find out more of what you need to know in order to know about foam. And we will include a link to that in the show notes, but I always like it that, you know, good professional knowledge is available for free. Yeah, that is really cool, man. Uh, if you're interested in foam, check it out. Uh, I, my solution is more foam on the beer is a can of whipped cream. Yeah. Says, the, <laughs> says the man who has suddenly discovered beer slushies. <laughs> Accidentally, yeah. Okay, that's <laughs> enough of that. Let's head over to the brewery and we'll uh, quickly tell you what's going on there. So stick around. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. And let's give back together. Welcome to the brewery, and uh, we got a couple quick things here to tell you about. The first one is that PBW is now available in liquid form, and that's kind of a cool concept. Yeah, this just popped up on one of my feeds and my attention the other day. So uh, PBW is now available in liquid form at the homebrew level, 32-ounce bottles, and I think it takes like one or two ounces per gallon. I forget. It, it, it's a rough dosage, right? Um, but one of the reasons why I think it's interesting is really part of the reason why they're, they're pushing it is that they claim it has much better solubility now and function at lower water temperatures. So you'll remember years ago, I did that, that experiment where I showed like comparisons of 
PBW and OxyClean and the Craftmeister Oxygen Wash and the Craftmeister Alkaline Wash, you know, and showing how that worked at temperatures and over time. And PBW kind of suffered from, you know, as the temperatures go down, the cleaning effectiveness went down. And so they say here, this is supposed to work better at colder temperatures. Now, and they're saying one to two ounces per gallon of water. So that really, to my mind, when I see that says at the homebrew level, you really want to make this in order to make this practical, you need to have this moving, right? You know, you only want to make a gallon of this and have it moving through a space in order to really maximize what you're getting out of it. I do also think it's funny that we now have a liquid form of powdered brewery wash. Uh, you know, <laughs> when you think of that, that makes about uh, as much sense as a session IPA. Or a black IPA. A black <laughs> IPA. Yeah, really, man. I mean, come on. But regardless, I mean, look, I mean, even at the professional level, there are people out there who you, you can get caustic soda as a powder or you can get a caustic solution as liquid. Um, so the fact that uh, Five Star has turned around and made PBW into a liquid is interesting. I have not used it yet. And Denny, I, you just, you're hearing about it now as I'm talking about it. So none of us have used it. If you've used it and try and seen the results from it, let us know what you think. But I wanted to let people know that that exists out there now as a thing. Yeah, you know, and I I'm probably won't be using it because I'm just so sold on the Craftmeister uh, stuff. I don't really have any incentive to try something else. But if you're a PBW fan and you want something a little bit easier to mix, check it out. Yep, absolutely. And speaking of brewing stuff, as I'm sitting here or standing here in the brewery, uh, one nice thing about a tall work desk is I can now stand. Uh, trying to think, where did we leave off last time? Last time we talked about making the American bitter, right? And that's the one with the incognito. So that's burbling away. We'll see how that goes. And eventually I'm going to send it to Denny so he can try it. But I'm trying to plan ahead. And I'm really thinking, I've got a nice Franconia lager strain that's waiting for me. So I was thinking maybe I'd make an amber lager out of it. Something something with just a bit of malt chew to it, not quite like a, a brown ale, not quite like a dunkel. Just a little something with a little toasty, little amberish, nice little Willamette character in it. Call it a day. And then, of course, I have to follow that up with something bigger. And I was thinking I would go back and make my Falcon's Claws. And part of the reason why this is uh, top of mind, uh, Graciani, who is out there and has been on the podcast before, he messaged me and put it out on Facebook that he had his brand new version of uh, Falcon's Claws just released from his own uh, taps. And he was talking about it. And I think his came in at around 13.5% alcohol. And by the way, I also went and I looked and calculated the cal- uh, calories on it, at least according to the calorie calculators you can find online. Uh, 12-ounce glass of that stuff is about 500 calories. <laughs> ooh, ooh, I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> but regardless... Well, because didn't you you have a Santa Claus, or did you drink it? No, I didn't yet. I was going to drink it. Uh, I drank a uh, an old Rasputin, and then decided it would be kind of a waste to drink the Sammy Slouse. So, I was going to maybe like save it for Sammy Day. There you go, which is uh, December sixth. Yeah. Um, and so, actually, I think on December sixth this year, I'm going to try and brew my Falcon's Claws recipe, uh, and then keep it going for the year so that I can have it at the other side. Um, but always kind of nice because, Hey, you know, why not? And speaking of Santa Claus, you, did you get the bottled version? Yeah. Right. Because the reason I asked that, because that seems like an unusual question to ask is it was just announced that Santa Claus is coming out in a can. And wow. I'm, yeah. And I'm trying to think like, uh, did you get a 12 ounce bottle of Sammy? Yep. 
Yeah, because they have 12-ounce bottles. They had 22s for a little while. I don't know if those are still around because, boy, that's an evening. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see if the Sammy Claus is coming in 12-ounce cans or, well, uh, 355-milliliter cans, or if it's coming in, in tall boys, so 16-ouncers, because <laughs> uh, that could also be an evening. Um, but I'll, I'll be curious to see how that carries across because, again, to me, Sammy Claus is one of those beers that ages really well. I still don't really have a good feeling about long-term aged beers and cans. Do yeah, I, I, I don't either. No, not really, man. Um, it seems like they'd be great, at least as good as bottles, right? Because bottles will eventually allow some air infiltration. So, Yeah, I think the only concern is about the lining on the cans and how that holds up over time. Yeah. Um, so very interesting. But, yeah, so I think I'm going to do a Franconia-influenced Amber lager, and then I'm going to get my hands on some uh, S189 and get, make me some Falcon's Claws. Cool, yep. cool. And and you're you're hanging out there, just still sipping on your hublon chief, aren't you? Or yeah, yeah, shoes. I am, man. I'm I am just thrilled with how that beer came out, uh, you know. And but you know, it's it'll only last so long, even at nine point eight percent. So I got to get out there and get brewing something again. And uh, I I checked the other day, and I have the right stuff in my inventory to uh, make a batch of no tie brown. So that's next up. All that and more shortly. That's so right. I think, I think that's where we're at in the brewery. Tell us about your plans. Are you going to set up anything huge for the holidays? Have you set up anything huge for the holidays? Are you doing something fun and challenging? And, of course, i got to start thinking about what I'm going to make for HomebrewCon because the Maltos Falcons will be there. And, damn it, that means my beer needs to be there. <laughs> How about another champagne beer demo? Uh, you know, I still actually have some of the really old stuff. Um, but yeah, champagne beer would be fun. I just got to find magnums. I can't find the liter and a half champagne magnums anymore. Hmm. Makes me mad. I get, yeah. I, I, geez. Life is difficult, isn't it? I know, right? First world problems. <laughs> okay. Enough of this stuff. We're going to head over to the lounge and uh, just real quick catch up with John Jackson from Wild Parrot Brewing down the street from Drew. We'll be right back. Fall brewing is defined by fresh hops, beer fests, and creative fermentations. Y-Yeast's latest release, Flannel Fest, offers up two yeast strains and a wild and sour blend for your seasonal brews. 2247 European Lager produces a clean, dry, and crisp profile often found in aggressively hopped lagers, while 2487 Hellebach Lager is known for creating the rich, full-bodied, and complex flavor profile of German beers. Our exclusive 9097 Old Ale Blend will develop the favored pie cherry notes and sourness from Brett in an easy-to-use mixed culture. This option is ideal for those getting started with Brett and beer aging for darker beers. Head over to whyeastlab.com for our latest advice about brewing with these strains, available now through the end of December. Visit store.whyeastlab.com for new Whyeast merch. Let's get brewing. just about time it's just about time don't you think it's about time we talked about beer okay this is the part where everybody sings beer 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 
Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. As if Drew needed an excuse to go have a beer, yeah. he, uh, he walked down the street to talk to John Jackson at Wild Parrot and uh, find out how things are going after he's been open a little while. Yeah, this is a real quick conversation because, of course, I was curious. This happened a couple of weeks back uh, after I think JJ had been open for going into week three. Um, and I wanted to catch up and see how he had been doing, like how his journey through the city had gone and what he was finding out now that he was actually professionally brewing as opposed to home brewing. So, uh, sit back and, uh, give it a listen. Last time I talked to you, it was, was that July or June? I think it was July. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it was a couple of months back, Yeah. but we're now what we're starting week three of service. Week three of service. We had our soft opening Three weeks ago tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. You know, I was going to say, it's been a busy three weeks, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, I've, it's been nonstop. Um, we're open seven days a week, which means I'm here seven days a week. Um, typically, I get here between 9 and 10 in the morning and leave between 10 and 11 at night, a little bit later on the weekend. So a little on the tired side, but uh, it's been fun so far. Well. Whoever said that the life of a small independent business owner was going to be restful? Yeah, it'd just be nice to like see my kids at some point. <laughs> but, but it's funny because that that's always a big problem for for the brewing world, right? Is you know you think about it, we do all of our brewing stuff during the day. A lot of people like to brew early in the day so they can avoid any sort of heat issues. Yeah. Yet all the consumption and activity is all at night, right. so you get this sort of Wait, when am I working and when am I not working? Yeah. it's oh, Well, I can tell you right now, always working. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, was going to say, uh, this is, I think, the third time I've crossed the door since uh, since you've been open. Yeah. Um, you're, you're getting ready for today's service. Um, and you have six beers on tap right now with number seven coming online as we speak, hence the reason yeah. we were talking about gelatin and biofine. Right, right. Because we're trying to avoid a hazy Oktoberfest. Yep. It's... Uh, it's a little hazy right now, but I, I transferred it yesterday evening around 9 p.m. It's like 2.30 p.m. the next day. So I know from experience it takes a few days for the biofine to, to make its way through and and, uh, and brighten up the beer. So I'm hopeful that by Friday, Saturday, we'll have relatively bright beer. It's tasting <laughs> fine. That's all that really, really matters. But it's also nice to have a beautiful beer. Well, yeah, I mean, that's always... That's always a good thing, but let's yeah. face it, flavor, flavor first looks second, particularly in this day and age of hazy IPAs, <laughs> which, by the way, we should mention, you do not have one of on tap. No, and of course, it's been asked about, uh, you know, daily. It is the next brew that I have. Um, the ingredients are sitting 20 feet from us here. So uh, in the next couple of weeks, hopefully uh, I can get to that, um, and then um, the, the thirsty masses will have their hazy. There you go. Well, and... To that point, you've got six beers on tap right now. If I'm remembering correctly in my head, three of them are lagers. One's a kettle sour, and then an IPA, and a stout. Yep, you nailed it. Hey, look <laughs> at that. Brain actually still works. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, for a new brewery to have half of your lineup being some sort of lager thing. I mean, as we talked about last time, you love lagers, so yeah. you're a lager head, you know. Uh, Kind of nice to have that time to build up the the capacity, right? I'm, I may be living in a bit of a fantasy land because I did have so much time prior to opening um, for the loggers to to logger. 
Um, and then the next three beers, so the, the Oktoberfest, it's Mertzen, it's, um, that would be the fourth lager that'll be on. And then I have two more sitting in the tanks right now for whenever I have space. So conceivably there could be six lagers on at once um, in a few months here. Though I'll probably have the hazy jump the line because if the IPA kicks, that's a problem because that and the Pilsner are two best sellers. So got to have got to have the IPA on on tap. Right. And so so far uh, going through the lineup, okay, you got a Pils, yeah. you know, a sort of a German uh, Germany Pils, right? Yeah. So nice hoppy, but you know, restrained. You've got a what I kind of think of as like a toasted amber lager, not quite a Vienna, not quite a Negromedola, but something right. in that direction. Right. We just generically call it an amber lager. Yeah. Um, that was the first beer that we brewed. You got uh, you got the one that I, that I like a lot, the Doug Heavy. The Doug Heavy, which um, was I would say a happy accident in a way. It was uh, it ended up being a 6.2 beer. Mm-hmm. It's an American lager. If you didn't know it was 6.2, you probably wouldn't guess it by drinking it. Yep. Um, the efficiency I got on that was just way higher. So uh, it's <laughs> it's both our most alcoholic beer and our least expensive beer um, for the non-California people. I apologize. It's still seven dollars, but uh, that's so that's that's our Doug heavy beer, and that's that's our number three bestseller. There you go. And then I think what a lime sour, which was kettle uh, yeah. kettle sour, right. the West Coast IPA, uh, uh, which I mean it's a surprisingly balanced uh, version of West Coast IPA, not not a punch in the face sort of West Coast. Right. I guess kind of like all of our beers were 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 going on the. Um, I'd say middle to middle alcohol level, right? So it's a 6.0 IPA um, balanced, like you said. So it's Citro, Citra Amarillo and Cascade hops. Um, yeah, I mean, I call it just a, it's like a throwback, mm-hmm. a throwback IPA. Yeah, with with definitely some of the newer hop flavors to it. But right. I mean, what's nice about it is it's you know it's as much as I hate the word balance, <laughs> it is. Not overly bitter. It's not overly aggressive. It has a lot of the the fruit hop characteristics that you want out of Citra and Amarillo, and it, but it's not bitter enough that you sit there after the first sip and go, yeah, <laughs> right. I think it's sub fifty on the IBUs, if I remember correctly. Which which kind of puts into what I've what I've been referring to as the modern West Coast IPA. Oh, uh, okay. You know, which is yeah, pulled back on the bitterness, more hop expression. Yeah. You know, just kind of almost a response to the hazy, but not hazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, the hopping on that was just a little bittering uh, at the very beginning, and then all Whirlpool and dry hops. And then the stout has coffee added to it. Right? Yeah, that was a major pain in the ass. So the the coffee shop that we're co-located with, with is not roasting yet. They're, they're hoping to do that in the next few months. So I used... Um, beans from a roaster in Sierra Madre, which is the next town over from here. Uh, six pounds dry beaned, um, which it went in the uh, the dry hopping port on the top super easy. And then guess what? They expanded a little bit and getting it out was like birthing a child. <laughs> so I'm up on a ladder on top of my, my super tall, narrow fermenters. Couldn't get it out. So I slipped on the gloves, got out some some scissors, ripped that thing open, and was just digging in there, getting the beans out, so I could I could birth the bag of beans. <laughs> oh, the challenges of having to do something on a professional scale. Yeah, right. All the while, the coffee service is going on, so they're they're hearing me grunting away, beer all over my face. Anyway, and I guess you have to be careful since you're working in public about just how many swears you let loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep it five and five or fewer per minute. 
Um, now, you just mentioned the, the, the kind of the crazy tall fermenters that you have, those very narrow fermenters, and we talked about that before. Right. Because right. the geometry on them is so different. Any surprises with those in the time? I'd say not. Um, I'm still using one of them for cold water right now. Um, and will be prob- Honestly, I might be doing that for the near future, mm-hmm. just because uh, knocking out, I can get it down, uh, get it down to say 70 in about half an hour by running 35 degree water through the heat exchanger. So, um, on the uh, on the tank geometry side, not really. Other than it being a complete pain in the ass to to clean those guys, which I imagine everyone, I mean, it's clean, pain in the ass to clean fermenters in general. Um, but as far as fermentation. No issues so far. Um, yeah, it's it's been fine. And then um, before before we talk about the Doug Heavy in, in depth, because of course that's what I want to do. Okay. Um, any other surprises from yeah? Because you you work through with the city. You got the, the you know Pasadena is a notorious city to work through sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you work through the city. You've got the place open. What's been like the the biggest lesson learned? Like what didn't go the way that you thought it was going to go? Well, I, I guess. Um, yeah, there's there's the sugar rush of the opening weekend where you're like, holy crap, we're blowing it out of the, you know we're out of the out of the gates we're blowing it up, and then like Monday hits and you're like, oh, shit. now we need to uh, now we need to market the hell of ourselves, and uh, so that's where we're putting all of our energy right now is, is figuring out how we're, since we're open seven days a week, how do we program uh, the early part of the week to bring people in so it makes sense for us to keep open seven days a week. Um, on the beer side, you know our Brewing pad is separated from our cold room where our serving tanks are by public space, so we have to transfer off hours. Um, my wife and I have done it. Uh, I, up until last night was the first one I did it by myself. Uh, we only had one mishap so far where we lost about a, a barrel of the coffee stout when uh, my wife opened opened two valves when she was only supposed to open one. Uh, not a huge issue, but we got, uh, yeah, we had a... a a stout shower, and then a bucket of stout that I could just drink from the rest of the night, and the rest <laughs> of it went down the drain. Well, that's the reason why, you know, that the old rule of thumb, which is always, you know, if you're dealing with valves, trace the line, trace the flow. Yeah. And Because at some point in time, you, everybody will make a, make a mistake. Oh, like I have, that. yeah. I, I burned the hell out of my hand on our second brew. Just you know, when you, uh, I, I opened up, uh, we had our kettle filled with our spirit. Our, our sparge water, and I just looked at the wrong valve, mm-hmm. opened it up, all of my hand. So, I mean, it, it's all bound to happen. Luckily, nothing catastrophic so far. Yeah. Well, and that's good. Yeah, we are. Now, how many batches have you done? Uh, nine, nine, nine. So yeah, n- nine, which is still. I mean, that's still a new system, right? Yeah, yeah still yeah. trying to. Oh wait, yeah, never touch that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell myself, double valve, double check. That's that's uh, that's the the saying I go over in my mind every single time. And then, um, any any other surprises or any or anything? What went right, like in your mind? Like what went the way you thought it was going to? Um, well, I, I'd say generally, like the beers taste good. That you know, you never really know. <laughs> um, and yeah, it. I think the reception from the people who I care about the most, which are the neighborhood folks, they come in here and they like the beer, and then the, the brewery folks come through, and you know, I, I'm not one to toot my own horn, but. They uh they've been like you know for a new brewery we usually give people a few months a year or so to 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 work out the kinks and and generally like the beers are solid so that's been a happy surprise as well that um you know there there aren't any obvious duds among among the beers right 
Well, and it was like I told you last night when I was here having a beer, but I'm noticing none of the things I usually think about with a, a new brewery. Because, yeah, my, my rule of thumb is always you give a new brewery six months to uh-huh. get everything kind of settled in. Yeah. Uh, before you actually, you know, like make any sort of firm judgments and go, yes, no, their beer is terrible, never talk about them again. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> and with the beers I've been having from you in the past couple of days, not getting any, any of those obvious fermentation flaws, I'm not getting any phenols where they shouldn't be, I'm not getting, you know, overly ester or anything, I'm not getting diastole or DMS, you know, I'm not getting any of the things that you would normally expect to see. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, are there little things? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, there's always going to be little things. Right. And until the... Until the day you get it perfect, yeah. <laughs> which in which case then you can retire, right? Um, so, well, I mean, it's good to see that like you know people are coming in that you're getting good reaction. Yeah. Uh, I'm. I had said this to you last night as well as like you know I'm also starting to see when we had talked previously we talked about activation, uh-huh. trying to trying to activate the neighborhood, and I am seeing more people out on the sidewalk. I am yeah. seeing more foot traffic, and that's right. good. Yeah, no, it, it's it's literally exactly what we wanted. So. Uh, and now, this is and, my neighborhood too. Yeah, and now we just need to get a few more places open, and we can totally we can be the we can be the hip the hip spot past you. That's never gonna happen. Lamonda <laughs> yeah. Park is very much the difference, uh, different of hip. Yes, yeah. This is the, this is the sleepy side of town. Totally. Um, so let's go back to the you know I had said I wanted to talk about the Doug Heavy. Uh-huh. But, um, just to set the context for people who haven't been involved in our conversations. The Falcons, uh, my homebrew club, we had a guy named Doug King. Doug King was the guy who taught me how to brew, and Doug King was most famous for his beer called Doug Weiser. And so when I came in here and I saw you had a beer called Doug Heavy, that made me go, I really? Yeah, it was kind of like one of those moments. So yeah. tell, uh, tell folks the story behind Doug, Doug Heavy. Doug Heavy, all right. Uh, the, on the name side, I've got a buddy named Doug. Um, at home, I was brewing Doug Light, um, and I was like, i got to name an actual beer after you, Doug. And so this beer I was going to brew, which I was thinking was going to be in the mid-fives, ended up being the 6.2 beer. Um, was, was that just because you had too much extract? You had yeah, like more efficiency was just product? super high. Um, and then uh, I was sitting by a pool with my wife, like our last hurrah before we ended our lives. And I was talking, to this about some, talking about this with some other folks, uh, and I was like... Uh, I think um, I'm going to need to do something about this beer. It's, I need to name it something. And I told them about you know, all the backstory about my buddy Doug. And they were like, Doug Heavy. If you got Doug Light, you got to go Doug Heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, it's Pilsner Malt, Vienna, and Corn. Uh, it's, I don't know, mildly bittered. Um, Perlay hops and then and then Saz hops at the end. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's people use it for the Micheladas here, which we started making very recently. Yeah, we call they, it a big American lager. One and the unusual one last night of somebody using the IPA to make a michelada that was unexpected. Yeah, right. No, I I gave that guy a double. Uh, yeah, I batted. I didn't know what I didn't know what to say. I still don't know what to say. <laughs> um, yeah, he asked for an IPA for his michelada, and um, when I reacted the way I did, he started questioning himself. But I'm like, no, no, no. You should definitely try that and get back to us. Apparently, his wife liked it, so. Good on her. <laughs> there you go. Or maybe she's just polite. Yeah, it, when, when I was thinking about the the Doug Heavy, the the style that I kept coming to in my mind was not so much like a big American lager as much as kind of like if an American brewery made a Hellespach. Mm-hmm. Because it's got that little extra oomph to it, right? You know, right. you said, oh, you know, if you don't know it's six point two, you're not really going to notice. And you're right, but at the same time, if you if you're paying attention, you can feel it a little bit more because yeah. it's not that. 
it's not that same sort of watery back and consistency that you get with Bud Heavy, aka Budweiser. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, still, you know, it's got a little bit more mid body and a little bit more back end to it. So it really did. When I first tasted it, I was like, you know, this kind of feels like a, a Hellesbach, but you know, obviously with some of those corny flavors to it, the, the kind of that more American approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, truthfully, it was pleasantly surprising. And I think so far it's been my favorite beer. But now knowing yeah. that, it's kind of like an efficiency accident. Yeah. Now you're going to have to figure out, can I do this again? I know. I I mean, part of me says don't mess with the recipe. Mm-hmm. You know, if, it, if it's tasting good now, then it could... I'll make it next time. Maybe it's maybe it's a five point two beer next time, and then it's just then it's just Doug. Yep. There you go. Oh yeah. And then you can have Doug Light, Doug, Doug Heavy. Yep. Yep. Doug. Doug, Doug Ice. Double Doug. <laughs> right. We'll we'll stop before we get to Doug Dry. <laughs> or the uh, the the SNL old skit uh, would be uh, Doug Gay. <laughs> Good lord, that's that's reaching back. Uh, well. I know, I know you're just about to hit service, right? Yeah, 10 so, minutes. Uh, I will uh, we'll wrap this up, but I mean, obviously, three weeks in, yeah. losing your marbles just slightly, right. which is completely to be expected. Um, are there any regrets so far, or are you just coasting still on the, on the high of actually being open? I'm coasting pretty high right now. Um, any regrets so far? Um... I guess not not marketing as much as we should have at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that probably would. There's there's people who literally like work across the street from us and don't know we exist. That's on that's on me. So I think uh, you know, for those who are uh, starting out, starting the marketing push um, a, a good bit in advance of your opening uh, would be would be advised. Well, I think what you, so I mean you're starting to do things like hey Monday night's going to be an industry night. Yeah. T- uh, Tuesday okay tomorrow night's going to be trivia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, other things, just kind of do some activation here. Yeah, I, I just this afternoon went over to uh, Gameology over in Old Town to talk to the guy over there about um, some kind of partnership. Um, that guy was super cool. He he gave me two games to, to test out. So uh, we have a lot of kid games here because we're family friendly, but doing something on the more adult side also, uh, maybe on a Wednesday. Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen any dogs yet. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how they're supposed to be in the patio. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Uh, Pasadena may not like dogs inside, um, uh, you know, particularly if you're combined with a food operation. Um, right. So we got that uh, that happening. Uh, like I said, you know, it's been fun to see more people moving around, seeing more people in this space even than I think even when it was just Rosebud. Right. Um, and then, yeah, for people who don't know their Pasadena history, which is probably most everybody, <laughs> where we're sitting used to be Game Empire which then became Gameology when Game Empire moved down the street and then sold the, sold or closed that store. Right, right. And then that became Gameology. So in a way, bringing Gameology over here is sort of returning back to the stomping grounds. Exactly. I was talking to a guy about that today. I guess uh, he was telling me about how a car flew through this front facade here uh, over a decade ago. I think I remember that. Yeah. Apparently right where the brew house sits today. Yep. Well, and where the brew house sit, uh, sits is where the, the line of gaming tables started. Yeah, so that's where the car f- flew through the window. Um, that's why we have insurance. Yeah, yeah we kind of uh, that would not be fun to take a car into the brewing deck. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I wonder who would win in that one. Stainless steel on. Hopefully, it's a smaller car. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But in the meanwhile, if, if if you folks are in the Pasadena area, and particularly if you're over on the Lamonda Park side of the house, 
Definitely come in. I mean, you guys are open, as you said, seven days a week, and it's like yeah. what, starting at three o'clock every day or three o'clock on the week. Yep. To nine ten. Uh, till ten. Last call nine thirty. Um, Friday we're open till eleven, and then Saturday and Sunday we open at noon. Uh, Saturday till eleven thirty, and then nine. I I get a little bit of sleep, and then we shut down at uh, uh, Sunday. We yeah, we shut down at nine, so I can get a little extra sleep. There you go. Awesome. Uh, now, hey, what's the you, you mentioned the hazy. What's the next beer you're going to brew? Oh, I don't even know yet. I don't know. I, I'm I'm leaning to, well, it's going to be fall and winter. I'm kind of leaning towards a Schwartz beer, but I'm not, I'm not positive yet. <laughs> Keep, keeping on that, uh, keeping on that lager front. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, yeah, while I've got, while I have the capacity, I can, uh, I can keep going on that. Well, you, you know, you could always make a, uh, a Doppelbach to help us get through those cold Pasadena winters. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one day in December. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what our, I think our average December temperature is sixty-three. <laughs> yeah, right. Bundle it's, up. It's brutally cold. All right, man. Well, hey, I'm going to let you get back to to serving the, the the people who are paying you money and and keeping the business open. But like I said, I'm I'm happy to see that that you guys are open and things are working, and I can't wait to see what else comes down the line. Cool. Thanks for dropping by. Well, so do you think that he was surprised by anything? I think the biggest thing that he was surprised about was how how hard it was to get enough attention uh, to the place. Yeah, because it's always that awkward part when you first open up a business, like you know, where you spend like those first couple of weeks going, all right, is anybody going to come? And of course, he had all the. He said in the interview, he had all the the looky loos come. You know, the people who who will march out to a brewery on the first week it's open because that way they can tick it off and claim, yes, I've been there. Um, and now his challenge was, okay, well, great. I've had those people come. That was good for business to start with. Now how do I get people to keep coming back and how do I build awareness in the neighborhood? And so be really curious to see if he can really gain enough traction here in Lamonda Park. Yes, that's the name of our neighborhood. We have an actual name, Lamonda Park. Um, and see if he can actually get people's attention. I went to his first trivia night. And that was surprisingly well attended. I, I should, shouldn't say surprisingly. I mean, Caltech is one of our neighbors. So there's a lot of nerds around here. And there was a lot of nerdy people out there in the audience drinking beer and doing uh, trivia. I will, however, say that I was very proud of myself. I was a one-man team. And I came in second by a point <laughs> to a team of six. Ah, wow. Keeping those nerd credentials sharp. I know, man. I, I guess it's that uh, Jeopardy training, huh? Oh, yeah. When I told John about that, he was, he was like, oh, so you're a ringer. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, really. To me, I think just really the, the the interesting part about all this is to learn what is going on with our local breweries and the challenges that they're facing. Obviously, JJ's got to get a lot more word out there, but I can't wait to see what he's doing. Since we talked, he's launched an Oktoberfest. He had an Oktoberfest party. He launched the trivia and he just released his first hazy IPA. So, <laughs> which of course he had to do. Of course. Okay, enough of this. Let's get the heck out of here, shall we? Absolutely. Let's do this thing. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap things up for you. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. We got a quick tip and a something other, and then we are out of here. Right. And uh, real quick, before we get into the quick tip, do want to remind people, this is episode 165. We missed the last 12 episodes when we were supposed to do an all Q&A, but our next all Q&A slot is coming up in episode 168. So get us your questions at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can send us an email there. You can send us a tweet. You can send us a message on Facebook. You can send us a text message at 626-765-1L. You can send Denny a knotted rug if you want. We will get your questions <laughs> and we will answer them. Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm glad one of us keeps track of that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, if I hadn't been keeping track, I wouldn't have missed before. That's my fault. <laughs> Okay, so the uh, quick tip for today, I've kind of alluded to it already. If you buy stuff in bulk, if you have leftover ingredients after you brew, keep track of what you've got. Track your inventory. Um, I kind of let mine get away from me. I knew that I had uh, a lot of bags of malt out in my garage, stuck away in plastic tubs, but I wasn't sure exactly what was there and how much of it there was, stuff like that. And same thing with my hops. I have a freezer stuffed with hops. But when I'm ready to brew, it's like digging through the freezer trying to see what's there. So I spent an hour or so going through all my ingredients the other day and making lists of uh, what I've got. Uh, I would have put it in the spreadsheet, but I'm way too lazy for that, so I just wrote it down. Um, and, in one of your fabulous notebooks? <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, yes. So... Um, what I discovered, though, was I had everything on hand ready, except for the yeast, ready to make my uh, no-tie brown ale. So I, last time I was in town, I picked up some 1450, and that's going to be my next brew. So especially like, you know, if you're kind of like stuck for ideas about what to brew, having an idea of what your inventory is might really kind of shove you in some direction. My only objection to that is if I have to inventory the hops and yeast I have on hand, I'll realize how lazy I've been about not using those things and feel more Scots-Irish Catholic guilt whenever I go to you know shop for more hops because I go, ooh, new and sexy. Oh, man, <laughs> I don't. I, I just go through and go, okay, that's going in the trash, that's going in the cra trash. Uh, this one I think is still usable. Uh, you know, I, I find it really kind of cathartic to, <laughs> to go through the hop freezer and clear it out. How very Marie Kondo of you. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> All right. And that's our quick tip for the week. And of course, obviously, we always would love to have your suggestions for quick tips. So podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And now for something other than beer, because life is not just all about the beer. I know it's shocking, but I got two podcasts for you. Both of these are already completed, so you can listen and they're both short runs, about nine episodes a piece, I think. And, but they're both also comedic podcasts and give these a listen. The first one. We'll probably make Denny laugh just at the concept of it. It is uh, Marvel's Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable radio show. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so the unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Doreen Green, is a – well, started off – she started off as a Z-tier joke of a hero who appeared in like one episode of a Marvel comic 900 years ago and then got resurrected by a writer by the name of Ryan North who – made a whole run with a couple of artists called the unbeatable squirrel girl. And the comics were great. Uh, they starred uh, Doreen green uh, who has all the powers of a squirrel and can talk to squirrels too. And uh, her catchphrase is to, that she likes to eat nuts and kick butts. Um, but the, the character was going to be played in a live action show by uh, Milana Weintraub, who most of you probably know as the AT&T girl, Lily in the commercials. And instead, that show didn't take off, but they turned part of it into a podcast where Doreen Green is hosting a radio call-in show at her university, and Milana plays uh, Squirrel Girl. And so give it a listen. It's absolutely hysterical, and it does a lot of the stuff that Ryan North did, who actually also helped write the podcast, by the way, in the comics, where it's a lot of sort of meta humor and a lot of fourth wall breaking. So go and give that a listen. That's Marvel's Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable radio show. And the other one that's only slightly more serious is from Crooked Media, and it's a podcast called Edith. Hear the exclamation mark, please. And it is a semi-comedic sort of out there history of Edith Wilson, who some people consider to be America's unofficial first female president. And she was the wife of Woodrow Wilson and helped do a lot of things, including some people argue run the country after Woodrow Wilson had a stroke after World War One. And the thing I thought was really interesting about this is it actually stars Rosamund Pike, uh, the actress uh, who I always think of from Gone Girl, uh, doing Edith Wilson and kind of pulling off her best turn-of-the-century educated upper-crust American accent and pulling it off very well for somebody who is very, very British. <laughs> and so that one's also available online freely. Give that one a listen. Again, it's nine episodes uh, and they're both really fun uh, podcasts. So again, Marvel Squirrel Girl, the unbeatable radio show, and Edith. <laughs> cool, man. Sounds uh, both of them sound kind of interesting and offbeat. Yeah, exactly. They're a little, little different of a twist. Yeah. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us. We're on Twitter at exp brewing at least for the time being. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I hang around on a bunch of different beer forums, uh, most notably the AHA forum, and you can find me on Facebook a lot. Drew hangs on the Slack homebrewing channel and the homebrewing subreddit. 
If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can give us a call and leave us a voicemail, shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. That comes out to 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 